Socrates famously said that the unexamined life is not worth living. And in a similar vein, a more recent philosopher has said that the unexamined holiday is not worth celebrating. I wonder if perhaps too many of us just try to get through the holidays and it's, there's hype and it's busy and it's chaotic and it's stressful and maybe we don't actually pause once again to reflect on the earth-shattering event that Christmas is based on and we don't pause and reflect on the enormous and unending implications of that event. And so that's what we're going to be doing together over these next four Sundays. And so we'll turn our attention now to Isaiah chapter 9, the passage just read minutes ago for us, and we'll see what's here. And I'd like to highlight and explore three major themes we see in the text, three points. Number one, the promise of salvation. Number two, the place of of salvation, and then thirdly, the person of salvation. So those three ideas, the promise of salvation, the place of salvation. Secondly, that that second point might better be titled the source of salvation, Um, but if we do that, we lose the alliteration, which is very important. The promise of salvation, the source or the place of salvation, and the person. Promise, place, person. And so let's begin. The passage begins with the promise of hope. It says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. We are told that our world is in darkness. What's that mean? How is the world dark? We're told that the world is dark and yet a light breaks in. When the Bible refers to or uses the word darkness, it generally refers to two things. It refers to both evil and ignorance. This world is filled with evil and untold suffering and yet also ignorance. And so you look at what's happening in the world at the time of the birth of Jesus. Okay, So Isaiah 9 prophesies the birth of this coming son who would be given for us, what was the world like when he came? I'll list some things. Violence, injustice, abuse of power, homelessness, refugees fleeing oppression, families being ripped apart, endless grief. Does any of that sound familiar? Yes, because that is our world today, too. It's filled with evil. It's filled with suffering. And the other way that our world is in the dark is that it's ignorance. No one knows enough to have a cure for this evil and suffering. No one's been able to fix it. We've been here for a long time. We've been around for a long time. And sure, there's been world leaders and very significant people in history who have come along and and have said that they really have the answers and they really can uh, discover the way to fix our problem of darkness and evil and suffering. And sure, there's even been some good progress in the past from time to time, but we've been here a long time and we still have the same problem of darkness, of gloom, evil, suffering. There is untold evil and suffering in our world, and yet Christmas 
is the promise of hope in the midst of it. Light invading the darkness. Just a couple verses up in Isaiah chapter 8, we're told why we need light from God. In verses 19 and 20 in Isaiah 8, people are consulting mediums and magicians instead of God for answers. That's what they're doing. They're looking to themselves. And so the chapter ends in verse 21 and 22, right before our passage begins this morning. It says, They passed through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. They looked to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. They will be thrust into thick darkness. What's that mean? The key is it says they are looking to the earth, looking to human resources to fix the world. They're looking to the experts, mystics, scholars. That's where they're looking for solutions. Essentially, they say, yes, we're in darkness, but we can overcome it ourselves. It's the same today. We look to the earth. We look to human resources. We look to ourselves, and we have the same assumption. Some look to technology. Some look to the state or government. Some look to this or that. Have you noticed the disproportionate reactions to our recent presidential election? I want you to think about that. Disproportionate reactions on both ends of the spectrum. You've seen those who are filled with joy and, and happiness. You see those who are filled with uh, some kind of peace about them. But it's disproportionate. It's disproportionate joy. Because for some it looks like everything in the entire universe depended on this. And thank goodness it worked out. We have nothing more to worry about. It's disproportionate. And you see the same disproportionate reaction on the other side of the spectrum. Because there are others who are filled with disappointment, grief, even rage. It's almost like everything in the entire universe depended on this, and it didn't work out. And now all is lost. See, wherever we look, wherever we look, whatever earthly place we look to for our ultimate answers of how to fix our problem of darkness, the underlying assumption is always the same. There are a million places you can look to the earth in this realm of created things for that, and the underlying assumption is always the same, and it's the same as it is here at the end of Isaiah chapter 8, and it goes like this, things are dark, but we can end that darkness ourselves. We can figure this out. It's been that way for a long time. It's been that way since the fall of man into sin, recorded in Genesis chapter 3, by the way. God is and has always been the only true source for our light and, and, and life and joy. And yet Adam and Eve declared their independence from their creator God. And they decided that they knew better than he did about how to achieve their own happiness. They knew better. Romans 1 teaches that because of that rebellion, our natural tendency is to look toward anything other than our creator God, for our ultimate hope, rest, security. 
We look to created things, Paul says in Romans. Created things rather than the creator. Anything in the created reality rather than the creator God himself. And the end result in Romans, Paul says, and it's similar when Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah chapter 8, the end result is that when we look to the earth only, it's thick darkness. Thick darkness. And like many in our culture, if, if you don't believe there's a God at all, if you want to just believe that there's no supernatural reality, there's no, there's no supernatural transcendent reality at all, there's no God, this life is all there is, and you turn to science to illuminate you, things only get darker. And I'll prove it. Atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell, the brilliant atheist philosopher from uh, the um, early 20th century, he sums it up nicely. Listen to what he says. Man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. His origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. No fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought or feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. The whole of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Well, Merry Christmas to you too, Bertrand Russell. You know what I'm talking about? This confirms what we see in Isaiah chapter 8. If we only look to the earth, if we only look to human resources and nothing else, if we don't look beyond ourselves, the darkness only gets worse. Text says, the people who walked in darkness. Ultimately, what that is referring to is death. The final and greatest evil. The fear of death. The last enemy to be defeated. All people live in the shadow of death, all of us. Another way to put that is death casts a shadow on every other part of our lives. We can't escape it. We're all in line. There's no getting out of it. And so various philosophies and worldviews and religions have tried to make sense of that, and they've tried to come to terms with it and tried to find some way to deal with it, but the harsh reality is that death comes to all of us, and if you really want to live your life as a secularist, if you really want to look to the earth and nothing else, if, if, if when you die you rot, then you have to be willing to face the bleak idea that everything in your life really is meaningless. It really is, and yet we have this need to feel significant. There's this universal human insatiable thirst for meaning and significance. But if this life is all there is, then we've got a problem with that. Gloom, to be precise, according to Isaiah. But in the midst of that gloom, in the midst of that darkness, the promise is there. Despite our popular culture's shallow and fluffy approach to Christmas, the true Christmas message does not say, cheer up. If we all come together, we can make the world a better place. 
as nice as that sounds, that's not what's going on here. True Christmas and true Christianity is saying things are really dark, and we cannot fix it ourselves. Things really are this dark, and yet there is hope. Or as Isaiah says, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light shone. Look carefully at verse 2. This is very important. Notice what it says. Notice that it doesn't say, from the world a light has sprung. It says, on them has light shone, which means it has come from the outside. And that brings us to our second point this morning, the place of salvation. There is a light outside of this world, and Jesus has brought that light into this world to save us. Indeed, he is the light. The place of salvation is outside of us. The world's hope comes from outside of it. And so Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 to 2 in his gospel account. And he says, The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And in John's gospel account, John chapter 1, of Jesus it is said, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. You know what that means? It means many, many things. But it means that the light, the light can only be received as a gift. It's not something we could produce. It's not something we could summon It's not even something that we could call out for to come upon us. It was an invasion. It had nothing to do with us. It was God acting in time and space, coming into our world from the outside through the person of his eternal and equal son. Salvation comes from outside of us. It's a work that God himself ordained, accomplished, and applies to his people. Which is why the next couple verses in Isaiah chapter 9, they they talk a lot about what God does, and they do not talk about what we do. You can look at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Isaiah is thinking of a freedom fighter like Gideon found in Judges chapters 6 through 8. Gideon breaks the power of their oppressors. And the thing to really notice is this. You and I are not the subject of any of the verbs in verses 4 all the way through 7. True liberation comes, true salvation comes from beyond ourselves. But why does it say on the day of Midian? What's that about? The answer is because God broke the power of the Midianite forces. He was an unlikely hero. Okay, God deliberately shrunk the size of his army from 32,000 men to 300. And God's strategy all the way back then was this audacious bluff. 
Gideon's men were blowing trumpets and breaking jars and, and holding up torches in the night. But God threw the enemy into a confused panic and they began slaughtering their own men. And so thinking back on that narrative, on that part of Israel's history, Isaiah is now looking ahead to a liberator even better than Gideon. A rescuer even greater than Gideon. Look at verse 5. Every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What's that talking about? A great battle is going to take place. There's going to be a great battle and evil is going to be defeated, destroyed. But you're not going to have to fight it. The great victory over evil will not require our strength. We won't need a warrior's boot. We won't need armor or a sword. Melt them down. Burn them up, Isaiah says. Someone else will come and do your fighting for you. But how? Isaiah doesn't fully tell us right here. You can, you can scroll down and look to the servant songs in Isaiah chapter 42 through 55. The prophet begins to point to a mysterious deliverer who is going to come. About him, it is said, he was pierced for our transgressions. On him was the punishment that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 53. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. He came here. He came to this world to destroy evil and darkness forever without destroying us. Have you thought about that? How can that be? The source of all the evil in the world, the core of everything evil and wrong in the world is essentially you and me, self-centeredness. The self-centeredness of the human heart. That's sin. It's our sin nature. Everything is about me. I'm the most important to me. Me first, you see. That's where the misery of the world comes from. All of it. And so, according to Scripture, and so if Jesus had come in strength, if he had come here to end all evil, how many of us would be left? No one. But that's not what happened. Because he came here. The invasion happened. But he came in weakness. He came as a lamb. The great battle that would be fought by another in our place doing the fighting for us that would eventually end evil and darkness forever came to the cross of Christ. He was crucified. He took the punishment we deserved, and so it's all of grace. It's all a gift. The light is received as a gift. When you truly begin to understand that, Like when that sinks in and when you truly grasp and embrace the gospel and this Christmas, this heart of Christmas, the result is utter humility. Utter humility. Complete and total humility. Pastor and author Tim Keller says it like this. Christmas is the end of thinking that you're better than someone else because Christmas is telling you that you could never get to heaven on your own. God had to come to you. It is telling you that 
People who are saved are not those who have arisen through their own ability to be what God wants them to be. Salvation comes to those who are willing to admit how weak they are. It's a gift. Why do you think we give gifts to each other? Why do you think gift giving is the central trademark and practice of celebrating the Christmas holiday? It all begins with this. It all begins with this ultimate gift, the gift of all gifts, of light coming into our world, upon this world, in the person of God, the Son. Some gifts are not easy to receive. You know what I mean? Some gifts can make you swallow your pride a little bit. What if you got a gift from your dear friend, and you opened it up, and you unwrap it, and, and you find that it's the gift he's, he's given you is a book on dieting. There's no way to receive that gift thankfully and sincerely without first admitting something about yourself that you'd probably rather not admit. You don't like to admit you're a sinner. There's never been a gift offering that can make us or that makes us swallow our pride to the depths than this gift of Jesus Christ to the world at Christmas. If God had to become human and go to a cross and suffer infinitely, that must mean that we are in pretty rough shape, worse than we'd like to admit. Nothing less than the death of the very Son of God himself could save us. So there must be some pride swallowing that goes on in our heart of hearts, to really accept this gift that comes to us. You have to admit you're a sinner. You have to admit you need to be saved by grace. You have to uh, admit that you need to, and you give up control of your life, and you give yourself over to Jesus. None of that comes naturally to us. You and I can convince ourselves that we're really pretty okay on our own. We're not that bad. We're better than that guy. And the gospel of sheer grace, the true gospel of sheer grace, the heart of Christmas itself, can become a stumbling block to us. It can become foolishness to us. Paul warned about this in 1 Corinthians. You know, it even sounds humble at first to say something like, when you have this attitude, it it sounds humble to say, I just can't believe it's that easy. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said that? I just can't believe it's that easy. I just don't think I can receive this as a gift. I've done a lot of bad things. I'm just not worthy of this gift. Of course you're not, but that's not humility. Friends, that is the worst kind of pride. Because what you really mean is, and what you're really saying is, in your heart of hearts, you are saying, you are looking at this gift, and you are saying, I don't want it. I won't receive it. I want Jesus, maybe, but not as a gift. I don't want your bleeding charity, you see. And so truly accepting this gift is seeing that the place of salvation or the source of salvation is utterly outside of us, utterly and entirely, completely outside of who we are. He does it all because we are completely helpless, totally helpless. There's No chance we could ever do it ourselves. 
Lastly, we come to the person of salvation. Our final point this morning. The person of salvation. You keep reading. And um, this is why we shouldn't get so wrapped up in, in the chaos and stress of Christmas. This is why we need to be stopped in our tracks and just have our jaws drop at what we read here. Isaiah gives us an electrifying glimpse into who this rescuer actually is. We should never lose our awe. We should never lose our wonder at how this promise of salvation actually turns out, how it plays out. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing in a little Christmas book, says, A shaking of heads, perhaps even an evil laugh, must go through our old, smart, experienced, self-assured world when it hears the call of salvation of believing Christians. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. A child. God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. And the child didn't just come. Jesus didn't just come. He was given. Text says, to us a son is given. And then the subsequent names and descriptions of who this child gift exactly is are astounding. Dr. Walt Kaiser, he's got a little book called The Messiah in the Old Testament, and he, hel- he helps us with this. He's looking at this passage, and he's looking at the names and the descriptions, and here's what, he, here's what he points out. Since names in the Old Testament designate a person's character or nature, it's no wonder that when the meaning of these names is understood, they confer such superiority and excellence to this coming child that no other child in history could ever compare with him. Why? Because these names listed are names that can only belong to Yahweh God. It's that simple. You can't apply them anywhere else or to anyone else. The mighty God was born, born into history. The doctrine of the incarnation teaches that God, God, like the God, the creator God uh, outside of time and space who set all things into motion, who created everything from nothing, that God got a human body. Incarnation is a Latin term that means enfleshment. It's this idea that in Jesus... God himself took on human flesh. The incarnation presents us with this very perplexing idea, when you stop to think about it, about this highest and greatest strength, the ultimate strength, the ultimate power, descending and becoming the ultimate weakness. How do you know something is truly great? It can descend into weakness. And in that, it's almost a test of its greatness. C.S. Lewis wrote about this. In The Great Divorce, he says, the higher a thing is, the lower it can descend. A man can sympathize with a horse, but a horse cannot sympathize with a rat. And he writes in his book, Miracles, he fleshes this out a bit more, and he's talking about Christmas, the incarnation, and he says, we catch sight of a new key principle, the power of the higher, just insofar as it is truly higher, to come down. The power of the greater to include the less. 
Everywhere the great enters the little. Its power to do so is almost the test of its greatness. In the Christian story, God comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, into humanity. God became a man. Truly understanding this, truly understanding both parts of it is earth-shattering, life-changing, revolutionizing. On the one hand, this rescuer really is God, actually, truly God. Before telling us what this coming Messiah will do, Isaiah tells us who this coming Messiah will be. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Mighty God, El Gibor in Hebrew. I interact with Jehovah's Witnesses every so often. We go out for coffee, we talk, get to know each other. They flatly reject the claim that Jesus is truly God in the flesh. He's not God. He's not Jehovah God. He's merely a created being. Sure, he's important, but he's not God. He's created. But this passage, as well as many others, poses an enormous problem for them because this coming child will be called El Gabor, mighty God. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I do know that this is not a name that can just be tossed around. It cannot be used for any created being, no matter how important. It's a name that is specific, designated for the mighty God of Israel and him alone. You see it again just a chapter later. You can flip the page and you're in Isaiah chapter 10. New passage, new context. And in verse 21, we're told, The remnant of Jacob will return to El Gibor, to the mighty God. Isaiah is no longer talking about the coming child. He's talking about Yahweh God. And so Isaiah identifies this coming child, this coming Messiah, and Yahweh God as one in the same. One in the same. Same essence, by the way. Same uh, existence, essence, uh, it's distinction in persons. We have to have a separate talk sometime on the doctrine of the Trinity. Very important to understand all that. But that's what he's doing. El Gibor, mighty God. The mighty God of Israel. The mighty God who's going to come as a child. First John begins this way. First John says, at the beginning of, of the passage of the letter, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we've seen it. John is saying that God himself, the God of the universe, came to us in Jesus and we saw him and we touched him. And so with the incarnation, you have the God-man in Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man, not some kind of hybrid. And that's an absolutely crucial part of the Christian faith. It has far-reaching implications. We'll hit just two. Number one, if Jesus really is God and not just a man, if he truly really is El Gibor, mighty God, then you can't just like him. Right? We have a different situation in our culture, in our modern world. This might be a bit 
harder to understand, but think about it. In the gospel accounts, in the historical accounts, for the people who actually interacted with Jesus, the historical Jesus, for the people who actually interacted with him and heard his claims, heard the things he was saying about himself, nobody liked him. You either feared him, or you hated him, or you worshipped him. Nobody liked him. Nobody said in that day, interacting with him, nobody said, he's just so inspiring. I just, I've learned so many things from him. You can't just put him on the shelf next to Gandhi and Mr. Rogers and any other religious guru or spiritual guide or wise person that you happen to like. He doesn't belong there. He has no place there. The Old Testament taught that this coming Messiah would be God himself. Not just a smart person, not just a religious expert, but God himself. And when Jesus hit the scene, he took all of that and said, yep, it's true. With his whole life, with his whole ministry on earth, he was constantly affirming and claiming his divinity. He was claiming to be God himself. And of course, his followers and the apostles crystallized all of this into sound doctrine for his church through the ages. And so if God really is, or if Jesus really is God, you can't just like him. Number two, uh, think about the other side of this. What, what about if Jesus is really a man, truly a man, and not just God, but truly, fully human? Well, then you've got a God who understands. You don't have the, the impersonal, detached God of deism, you have the God of Hebrews chapter 4. You have the God who sympathizes with your weakness because he knows what it's like. No other religion says that God suffered. No one says that. That very idea is absurd and highly offensive to any other faith, this idea that God suffered. But with the gospel and with Christmas, you have the God of the universe suffering as a man in your place to save you. Why hasn't God stopped evil and suffering in the world? I don't know. I don't know. But we do know that it can't be because he doesn't love you. It can't be because he doesn't care about us. You see him and he, you know he cares so intensely, so intensely that he entered into our suffering, entered into the evil, and took it all upon himself. Don't you see? Because, because the man really is God, you cannot just like him. He demands our worship. And because God really became a man at Christmas, he offers us true friendship, real friendship. Think about the implications of God becoming a man, a baby. Doug Wilson is a pastor in Idaho. He writes books. He's got a recent little book out um, called Why Christmas is the Foundation for Everything. And he is reflecting on this. God becoming a baby. Listen to this. The one who spoke the galaxies into existence was willing to become a little baby boy who could do nothing with words except jabber. And in that jabbering, make glad his mother and earthly father. He, the source of all life and all nourishment for that life, was willing to be breastfed. 
He, the same one who had separated the night from the day, was willing to have his diapers changed for a year or so. Wilson says, it is not disrespectful to speak this way for Christians. It's disrespectful not to. We believe in the incarnation. We believe in the word made flesh. This is our glory. This is our salvation. The creator God became a man. When he didn't eat enough, guess what happened? He got hungry. When he didn't sleep enough, he got tired. When the soldiers drove the thorns into the skin of his scalp and and drove the nails into his wrists, it hurt. He ate. He slept. He laughed. He cried. He was tempted. He was angry at times. And you know what else? He died. You see, Christmas shows us a God Unlike the God of any other faith, any other movement, any other religion, have you been hurt? Have you been lonely? Have you been betrayed? Have you been sick? Have you faced death? So has he. So has God. Jesus, the God-man, offers to us in himself the object of both our worship and our trust, and he offers us ultimate friendship. And lastly, check out verse 7. Keep working through it. Verse 7, the increase of his government and of peace will see no end. He'll reign from the throne of David with justice and righteousness forever. This really is the greatest news of all. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise with King David, a covenant with King David. 2 Samuel 7, and God said to David, he said, when your days are fulfilled, when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever. Forever. That's a big promise, and it's not exaggerated. It finds its ultimate fulfillment in this promised Messiah, this literally, this son of David, this heir to the throne of David who came to set up a different kind of throne, a different kind of kingdom, a forever kingdom that will eventually put all things right forever and will never experience loss, will never experience corruption, you're not going to have to worry about the abuse of power, marginalization, oppression, injustice of any kind, anything. You're not going to have to worry about anything like what we experience in our temporary earthly kingdoms. In his commentary on this verse, John Calvin writes helpfully, he says, we can see that the mightiest governments of this world as if they were built on a slippery foundation, are unexpectedly overturned and suddenly fall. How fickle and changeable all the kingdoms under heaven are. We learn this from history and daily examples. Calvin says, this government alone is unchangeable and eternal. That was like 500 years ago. It's still true. 
You know he's right. You know John Calvin is right about that. And so don't put too much of your hope into an earthly government. goes back to our first point. Don't look to the earth alone. Place your identity in this. See the place and the importance of earthly government in perspective with your perspective of this greater reality. It's an empire of grace. It will forever expand. There will never be a moment where we we get to this place where we say, you know, this is it. This is the limit. We've seen it all. He can't think of anything new. That's not going to happen. Another Bible scholar reflecting on, on this verse says, the finite will experience ever more wonderfully the infinite, and every new moment will be better than the last. And I just immediately was reminded of how C.S. Lewis ends his Chronicles of Narnia. Maybe you've read that to your children, and you'll remember at the end, he, he says, at the end of all the stories, we can most truly say they all lived happily ever after, but for them it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world, all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's the future hope of Christians. That's the future hope we await and long for, following after our promised child, Messiah, God-man who came to save us. And so you see how a Christmas passage, Isaiah 9, or I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 7, is read. Nope, it's Isaiah 9. Got that. Uh, It's read around Christmas time over and over again because it's a great Christmas passage. It promises the coming child who will be born, a son given to us. And yet you can see how it immediately connects with, points to this eternal reign of justice and righteousness. So we have a promise in the midst of the darkness and the gloom. We have a promise of a salvation that comes from outside of us. And it's accomplished by this person of salvation, this gift of Christmas. This is the heart of our faith. This is the heart of the gospel. We must put our trust in him. Would you stand? We'll close in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gift of Christmas, the miracle of Christmas. We pray that in the coming weeks, you would continue revealing yourself to us and revealing our helplessness and our desperate need for you. And as we come aware of that, as we become aware of that, that we might see the person and the work of your eternal and equal son, Jesus, our rescuer, our Messiah, our Redeemer, the one who came and gave himself up to rescue us and save us, bring us into a kingdom of righteousness and justice, uh, and justice that, that will never fade and will never go away. Help us to live our lives now, passionately involved, passionately caring for our immediate surroundings, loving our neighbor, doing good in our world because of our ultimate identity in that kingdom. Help us to take time this season to reflect on these things deeply and just be moved by your spirit, drawing us toward Christ in awe, wonder, and worship. 
And we praise and thank you in Jesus' name for all of these things. Amen.